You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the president of Wiley Education Services, Todd Zipper. Hello, this is Todd Zipper, and I am the host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Zvi Galil, who the Wall Street Journal dubbed the man who made online college work. Zvi began the online master of science in computer science at Georgia Tech in 2014, which is regarded as the first affordable, fully online master's degree in the United States. He was recently named one of the 10 most influential computer scientists in the last decade by academic influence. A few highlights from our discussion. The first MOOC-based degree at Georgia Tech opened up a larger market than would have existed without it on a global basis. Second, MOOC-based degrees, which can be high quality and low cost and at scale, can deliver on the promise. Part of the vision is to extend this into the undergraduate realm. Third, online degrees from elite universities can be delivered at a fraction of the cost and to a large number of people. And lastly, part of the success was getting buy-in from the board of trustees and the critical faculty, as well as investing from a corporation that didn't have a stated upside. Hello, Zvi. Thank you for joining here today on An Educated Guest. I know you have spoken about this topic many times before at Harvard, through keynotes and other mediums, and you recently told Forbes that the online master of science and computer science that you launched at Georgia Tech is the biggest thing you've done in your life. I'm just so excited to talk to you today. I recently read a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. The premise of the book is to focus on businesses that create something new as opposed to copying things that already work. I think you and your team have done such that in creating a great program from an elite university that is about the 10th the cost of a traditional master's of computer science. For our podcast listeners, let's assume they do not have all the background on your transformational work here. Please tell us more about how and why you started the OMSCS at Georgia Tech and what you did from there. To start with, you know, uh, for some times I have been concerned about the cost of higher education, especially after several years ago, we were also about the debt incurred by many of the students, especially in college, and especially when it passed the one trillion mark, though now it's approaching uh, two trillions. But I was only a dean, you know, this was the issue of tuition and how much people pay and how do they get the financial aid was above my pay grade. It was at the level of a president, board of trustees, or board of regents in the case of state university, because then it's, it's a university system of 20-something universities in Georgia. But then an opportunity came up for me to possibly do something about it. So before I say the how, I give you one or two minutes of history. Distance learning existed uh, since the 60s of the last century, 1960s. Online learning existed since the 90s, immediately a year or two after the internet arrived. And online degrees existed uh, since then. They were, however, of a, usually of a mediocre quality. It was essentially somebody videotaped the class and, and people can watch it online with minimal student support 
and with a full tuition. <laughs> and then uh, in late 2011, the MOOCs appeared. So actually MOOCs appeared in 2008. The term was coined then, but the initial MOOCs were not exactly MOOCs, but M in the MOOCs is massive, massive open online courses. They were not exactly massive. The, what we know today as MOOCs appeared in late 2011. There were three courses from Stanford. The first was Artificial Intelligence by Sebastian Tran and Peter Novik of Artificial with 160,000 students. But immediately there were two other courses by Andrew Eng and by Jennifer Widom. Three courses from Stanford. And then in early 2012, uh, two companies were started. Sebastian Tran started Udacity and Daphna Kohler and Peter Eng started Coursera. And then the MOOCs proliferated. Uh, actually, New York Times, I think it was Thomas Friedman, called 2012 the year of the MOOC. Justifiably. In September of 2012, Sebastian Tran visited me and he told me, Tzvi, how about doing a MOOC-like degree for $1,000? By the way, at that time, all the MOOCs were free. That was the culture. All the MOOCs were free, which, by the way, was in some sense also a disadvantage because students are not exactly serious when they don't pay anything. And I told him, Sebastian, I think, and I'm pretty good with numbers. I told him $1,000 won't do. <laughs> I said, probably $4,000 will do. And then uh, later a little bit, when I got to our administration, they were a little cautious and they went for $6,600. And justifiably so. So I'm not criticizing them. That, that was a smart thing to do. Because there are costs if you want to create a program with services. Uh, you cannot do it for free, okay? I was only the dean, you know, and I believe in faculty governance and a dean, even a president, cannot usually do or decide what the faculty will do. You cannot tell them, tomorrow you will do X. They will laugh him or her out of the office, you know? That's not how university works. They have to want to do it. So I created a task force, a task force uh, about close to 10 faculty members, cheated a little bit because I knew they liked MOOCs. However, they were not going to decide it. And I told the faculty, if you don't want to do it, we don't do it. You know, you have to want to do it. And the task force created the blueprint, had several town hall meetings. I came, Sebastian came, me and my right-hand man, uh, my uh, executive sen uh, senior associate dean, who is now my successor, Charles Isbell, did not go to the meeting of the task force. Only when invited, only to answer questions. And I basically said, if you don't want it, we won't do it. Over six months, they created the blueprints, decided all sorts of things how much faculty will get, you know, there are all sorts of issues to settle. And they brought it to a vote to the faculty. 75% of the faculty voted for, 25% voted against. Then he needed the approval by Georgia Tech Institute, then by the trustees, which is called Board of Regents. And that was two months later. And in May of 2013, we got approval and then we went to work and created the first five courses. 
And in January 2014, we started OMSCS. OMSCS, to remind you, is online MS, Master of Science degree in computer science, OMSCS. And it started in January 2014 with 380 students and five courses. And what is it today? In the spring, we had slightly over 11,000 students, and there were 51 courses. <laughs> and so far, 5,000 students, a little over 52 or 5,300 students graduated. And is it fair to say that most of these students would have never come to a campus praise program? The Harvard group did the research on OMSCS, and they talked to the first students from the two or three years and surveyed them. The vast majority would not do it without us, without this kind of education. Either the tuition was way too high, or they didn't live in a university town. And they had families, they had jobs, they were not ready to relocate. And they tell me, I, I've traveled all over the world. I gave dozens of OMSCS talks over a dozen countries, and I meet them. And they thank me, and they say to me, I wouldn't do it otherwise. I think there's a couple points I want to highlight. First is that you not only innovated on tuition, you took a risk where MOOCs at the time were growing, but their completion rates were very questionable. So you had to still live by the standard, a high standard of a degree and all the things that come from that, that the Georgia Tech would use. The other thing that you did that I want to get your perspective on is you partnered with a corporation, AT&T. So we see donors fund colleges and schools of business and technology, but the way you funded this through AT&T is also a pretty unique innovation. So we recognize the fact to produce a really high-quality MOOC, a course like this, initially cost us $300,000. It's now about hundred, still expensive. It's like producing a small movie with a course designer, there is staff, you edit it several times, you take out pieces. It takes full semester. And certainly the tuition was low, the numbers were low, and we needed her help. Now, Georgia Tech is a state university with very low uh, endowment, you know. Harvard and MIT, they could fund edX. I mentioned Coursera and Udacity. edX appeared several months later. They just put immediately $60 million with edX, okay? Even not for doing any degree, okay? Georgia Tech cannot do it. So that was very important to have, and that's what I recommend others that start such a program to find a donor. And Sebastian and I went to the CEO and chair of AT&T, Randall Stevenson, on a, I remember the day, Friday, January 11th, 2013. On Monday, he gave us $2 million. A year later, I went to him again, just by myself, he gave us another $2 million. This was crucial. We even didn't appreciate it. You know, you don't appreciate it when it happens. You realize it later. As a result, we were in the black all the time. We didn't need money from Georgia Tech. Nobody had to invest. That was the investment. And that was critical because of the novelty. There was always a danger that the 25% or the, all the naysayers will have the upper hand. 
Plus, you can develop much fewer courses, so you can grow, you know, five courses is not enough for a degree. This was unbelievable. Did AT&T get to hire the graduates? Like, what was there? AT&T did not. They sent their employees, but they still paid the, the tuition. Tuition is low, but they still, they didn't get any break. In admission, the admission criteria, they didn't get any break. Nobody looked where they came from. They didn't ask and didn't get any break. Initially, Sebastian thought that maybe Udacity, maybe even AT&T will influence the curriculum. Faculty didn't agree to this. We didn't argue, we just said no. It was crucial, I will always be thankful to special to Randall Stevenson in number two of AT&T, Bill Blaze. So other schools have tried to launch other MOOC-based degrees, which is essentially symbolized by a, a top 200 university brand, a lower cost than is, a much lower cost than is traditionally offered on campus. And yet we don't see this proliferation of this, this success story of Georgia Tech. Well, so first it has to some extent, I actually, in my recent interviews, I mentioned 30 universities with 40 programs. But there is a company called Class Central, which is the most knowledgeable about online and, and MOOC-based learning. And actually the real number is 72. <laughs> so there are 72 programs that are much more affordable, okay? And also MOOC-based. So the MOOC-based is the piece that enables the course to be large, you know? And that's why we needed Udacity initially. Do you imagine that, and I think the early promise of MOOCs was to bring the cost of education down, right? Especially at the undergraduate level. Do you see a, a point where universities like Georgia Tech use this MOOC-based platform to go into the undergraduate courses and figure out ways to cut that cost a lot? So I have a vision. The decisions haven't been made. This is my personal view. So. It's not a view of anybody in Georgia Tech. But first I'll tell you, in 2017, I already decided to move into undergraduates. And we offered the first basic course in the undergraduate program, which is called Introduction to Computing Using Python. Python is the, the current programming language that every beginner learns. And this is the course most popular in what we offer, because first of all, every student, except when they have AP, take it. Plus uh, many, many in other, uh, all of Georgia Tech has to take intro to computing one way or another. Many of them take this course. So every semester, there are between 300 and 400 students in the course. And what happened is we offered it online. A little more than half took it online. The other half took it in class. And the survey showed that actually they liked the online better. <laughs> Everything was comparable, but a little, a little bit higher in the online because again, I a little bit cheated. The teacher was David Joyner, the best teachers we had, teacher we have. Not everybody is a terrific teacher, but he did fantastic job. So the idea is to test the water and it was very successful. And since, since 2017, we have it online. In 2019, we introduced two more undergraduate courses. 
But then there was a pandemic, everybody moved to online. So, and here is my vision, it's my dream. I hope very much it will happen. So we actually proved this OMSCS, it was an experiment. The experiment proved that a very highly ranked uh, program can produce online MOOC-based program of the highest quality. There is no difference. Same exams, same requirements, same performance, everything. No discounts. Only the price. And what I hope here is that that can be used in college to actually lower the cost of college. And I'll explain exactly how. First of all, I'm for the real college, so I'm not in any way for abolishing college and moving entirely to online. College performs many, many tasks and it has many roles and it's important. But in my vision, up to one third of the courses students can take in college, can take it online and usually not when he is on college camp. So for example, the very introductory courses, they can take while in high school or while at home in a year after high school while working on some job. So they can take some introductory courses, okay? So that's the intro courses. In the middle of the study, some students go on internships, some students go on co-ops, many go on summer vacation. They can take courses online there, okay? Also not being on campus. And at the end, they can complete the degree already on the job, taking online their final courses. For example, in the case of Georgia Tech, OMSCS courses, many of them can count as advanced undergraduate courses. In many universities, the advanced courses are also master's courses. So up to a third of the classes they can take online, not on campus. And here comes the big question. Will university lower the price? for online when they are not on campus. And they need not lose financially because if it is planned accordingly, they have a place in the classrooms and dorms to more students. They can always fill the dorms and the classroom as they used before. The amount they will get from full tuition will not be hurt. Zvi, let me distinguish between a few things. There's the on-campus experience in that course, there is online education that we could define a couple different ways. One is for, like you said, the last 20 or 30 years, there's probably thousands of accredited online degree programs that are typically similar cost to an on-campus option, but for typically working adults. And then there is the MOOC-based degree, which again, is the same diploma that someone gets. But the difference here is that one is like you said, massive. One is going to have like 10,000 students in a particular program or maybe hundreds in a particular course. And the cost is going to be a lot lower versus the traditional online experience. Zoom University and what happened, the pandemic sort of made everything online, which also throws everything to a wrench. And so I'd like you to help dive into the OMSCS and help us understand why that MOOC degree that online degree is different, how it's different than maybe a traditional 
online degree that is being, or maybe it isn't different. It is not. They should charge less. I'm not sure. I'm tell, not telling them how and what. <laughs> they should charge less. So you all figured, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with this bottoms up analysis. It started with, let's charge $1,000. And, and then you, you really put forth the bare bones of what you actually need to do to teach the course, build the course, and then teach the course, service the course. I know there were and are innovations of this program, such as using IBM's Watson technology to answer questions, you know, in an artificial intelligence way. Can you talk about some of those support services and other things you had to do to create scale and quality at scale, I should say? There are two issues. First, the technology, but the real crucial technology was the platform that we started with Udacity. That was the crucial. The other ones help us facilitate it. By the way, I want to say one word about the cost. Probably seven or eight thousand dollars is too low. It's based on the fact that we already have the faculty, <laughs> and they're already getting paid. You know, they're getting extra. So probably it's needed to be higher. And in fact, all of our seventy something followers, including the two at Georgia Tech, is about ten thousand. And for example, the first follower was IMBA from Illinois, twenty-two thousand of MBA, which is still. Uh, quarter of the price, you know, right. but it's not as cheap. And one day if you do it in, you have to price it correctly. We started with the MOOCs that cost nothing. So then Sebastian said 1000 and that was the culture then. And then we did a little more and it's bare born. But even because of large number, you know, when you, I don't know if you know you're that good in math, when you multiply small number by a very large number, you still get a large number. I think the net, that means all the tuition, minus all the expenses, the net income was $25 million hmm. this year or next year. You know, it's not negligible. Right. What's nice, you know, and what I recommend for to everybody is experiment, experiment, experiment. One of the things that we learned, two major things. One is that there is this huge, uh, possibly huge, underserved population that needs it. And the second one is never say never. I just said it, oops. But never say never. If you don't try it, you don't know. Don't say, oh, you cannot do this. Or here, face to face is crucial. Because A, you first try it. And B, even if it's not great, technology improves all the time. Now, on the way, we also try to find technologies that help us. So one of them is Jill Watson that initially used Watson technology, and that's why her name is Watson, but I'm not sure it uses it anymore, but it uses AI to answer questions. But not all, for the moment, people are misled, not the deep technical questions, but all the questions of the bureaucracy, you know, when is the exam, what do I need to know, things that are written somewhere, but students don't read. And it's very easily, it answers, and there it has a 90% precision. We're now working on a version with helping with technical problems, which is much more challenging. So they deal with some. We also developed, and I don't want to get into the details, technology for cheating. Though, you know, cheating, in face-to-face there is cheating as well. So it's not only online, but online is somewhat easier. So we developed some AI technology to prevent cheating, to recognize copying to prevent the outsourcing, you know, 
there is industry, I think in India, that does all sorts of exams and problem sets. And another one, kind of similar for Piazza. Piazza is a platform for student discussion, but many students ask the same question. The system identifies questions already asked to make it more efficient. And Jill Watson now uses it too, simply to economize, to be more efficient in finding solution to questions because that the same question was asked. So the last year and a half has thrusted the entire industry online effectively, you know, sometimes not so nicely talked about in terms of Zoom University and, and that quality experience, which I think is very different than, you know, a high quality program or what you're talking about at Georgia Tech. How do you think sentiment has changed towards online? And do you think that the moment is now to pursue more of these opportunities like what you've designed at Georgia Tech? It's mixed. So the, the experience of suddenly, with no preparation, moving to online was not exactly smooth. By the way, Georgia Tech people, we already have 54 courses. So, and we advise other places, you know, what to do, how to do. We offered our advice to a number of places. So some people had, those who had really bad experience may not get near it. However, many, many were exposed to it and they can see the advantages. So I believe online will be used in much, much broader way. So there are many ways to use it. One is hybrid. You know, hybrid is that the course itself, the content is online, but then the classroom is used to break them to relatively smaller groups to have discussions and to elaborate on the deep or problematic or challenging points in the class. So that's the hybrid version. Basically, my colleagues, Charles Isbell, who is the dean, but the main guy is David Joyner that I mentioned also, they wrote a book that is coming out in September that is called The Distributed Classrooms. All sorts of modes that can you teach online. They actually consider quite a number, there is a matrix, so it's several different ways that online can be used and they, they explore many of them. I believe, yes, it will be used more. And I believe also for the college, uh, this is also my vision. American universities are the best in the world. Actually, Jonathan Cole, who is a friend who was provost at Columbia when I was there, wrote two books about it. They are the best university. The research in these universities is fantastic. They also do a very good teaching job, except the best universities teach minute number of students. I think with online, if they go this way, they could fulfill their mission much, much better. That's a good segue to talk a little bit more about the MOOC sector, where the MOOCs, if you listen to Coursera's numbers, they're talking about tens of millions, 70 million or something like that. edX, 35 million users there, they're teaching. So these are the mostly US brands in the world teaching students something, right? It's a course, but what we know is we've got completion rates that are questionable. So to compare that number to, like you just said, the actual students that are going through a curated degree-like experience at the undergrad or the graduate level is very different. I'd love to get your thoughts, especially some news that came out a few weeks back that to you acquired edX. Essentially, I mean, Udacity is less of a MOOC is my understanding today. So you essentially have the major MOOC platforms residing in sort of a for-profit status, but still partnering with the best universities of the world. 
beyond the degree, the MOOC degree that we're talking about here, how do you see the, the MOOC experience evolving in the next several years? MOOCs have their place. With, uh, I'm not sure it's still single digit. It used to be single digits completion rate. It might be 12% now, so it might not be single digits. I didn't follow the numbers. And they have their place. You really need very, very disciplined people to take them. And actually, when you pay, and there is payment for certificates, but it's, it's not clear what, if the certificates are worth anything. They look like the certificate of the dentist, you know, on the wall, but I'm not sure who gives them a, such a value. Taking it for degree and paying for it makes students much, much more serious. MOOCs will exist and there will be some people, you don't need a degree if you are very disciplined and you want just to know the material. That's okay. Somebody takes it, he suddenly has a difficulty at work, in the family, and he drops out. That's what happens. They don't finish. Actually, initially, it was single digits, and less than half started the MOOC. They just registered. They didn't download the first lecture. <laughs> so I believe there is a need for the MOOCs. So for MOOCs, by the way, all of our courses are offered as free MOOCs also, but then without student services, which is the point, I, if you want, I can get back to. Without exams, nobody grades them, nobody, you know, they just take it as MOOCs. They're all available. There are not many of those that have the willpower and the perseverance to finish the MOOC. It can be very useful. Yeah, it sounds like the free MOOC is like a dynamic textbook. Yes, yes. I was describing it as a textbook. Yeah. It's exactly like textbook. And by the way, Sir John Daniel, who was the vice chancellor of the Open University, which is the largest university and does a lot of online and also MOOCs, he said already seven years ago, whatever, about six, six, seven years ago, that MOOCs without credentials are second-rate education to the unwashed masses. I wouldn't say it like this. <laughs> you understand what he meant? Yes. Credentials. That was the main part that was missing in the MOOCs. Right. I mean, and the employers still value that as much as they're trying to get more to short courses and skill base learning, they still need that credential. So how do you think about success for these MOOC degrees? Because I know Georgia Tech recently launched or in the last couple of years, other MOOC degrees. Two more. Two more. One in analytics and one in cybersecurity. Can you imagine that you mentioned the IMBA at Illinois? I mean, can this hit any subject area or, I mean, I know you're focused on technology, but. As I said, you don't know if you don't do it. Right. So the second one was not in computer science. Computer science is natural. The technology is from there. Students in computer science are more fluent with the technology. That's a natural, obvious place to start. They started with IMBA. And you know, we are 11,000, but both our analytics and their IMBA have 4,500 students. So they're not small either. Right. The cyber is more recent. It's 2019, and it has about close to 1,000. It has competition because you can also take our OMSCS with specialization in cybersecurity. Some people prefer it to OMSCS because they get other qualifications, you know, and they can do other things. Though cyber is very hot, you know. Cyber is the hottest part of computer science, which is the hottest field, period. 
So as we get towards wrapping up, are there any other innovations that you're pursuing or that you're seeing in the market that are worth attention and talking about today? So as you see, I'm less focused on innovation and more on getting it into the normal way of operations of universities, which is, cannot report to you that it hasn't happened yet. And I'll be pushing and now I'm not even a dean. I hope Georgia Tech will, and this needs planning. So my, what I call integrated method that you have the college when you have part online, it's challenging, but it can be planned. You can do it so that basically all the online tuition, which is small, but multiplied by a large number will be extra because the normal paying will be the same because more people could pass through the university if some of the students, some of the time are not on campus. So I'm not that focused on specific innovation that will come. And it's wonderful, like Jill or the Piazza or the cheating. Though to bring them, the innovation here is have university do it in the 21st century. Because as I said in one of my interviews, uh, universities are the second most conservative institution after the Catholic Church. And faculty, and I... I'm all for faculty governance, but faculty can be very liberal in their voting record. But when you touch them, they are very conservative. They are against almost any change, even if they are liberal, even if the change look like it will, ma- will make their life better, because they always suspect that behind it there is something that will take advantage of them and not always wrong. So they are against change. And that might have been my biggest achievement, to get the buy-in, okay? And that's why everybody asks me when I go and give this talk, how did you do that? And I'm not sure I know how I did it. (laughs) Well, the time was right for sure. And I'm going to wrap up here. I ask this of all my guests. It's one of our core values at Wiley is learning champion. We love education. We all have learning champions. And I would love to know who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? So it's my father. So my father was a professor in botany in Tel Aviv University. Actually was one of the six first professors of Tel Aviv Universities. And in 1953, founded Tel Aviv University, which is now the biggest, you know, one of the top world-class universities in Israel. There are three or four of those. And he was a professor and he was my role model, but not of everything. (laughs) (laughs) But in the area of learning, of studying, of doing research, he was my role model. I saw through him, what does it mean to be a professor? What does it mean to do for living what you love? And he actually said several times, nobody took him up on it, that he would do the same job for half the pay. (laughs) In some cases, even say it for no pay, but I'm not sure how he'll earn his living. Okay, or in some cases he said, I might even pay them to let me do it. So I'm not that materialistic, but not as non-materialistic as he was. But I saw for him what a university professor that does teaching, which I love, and research, which I love even more, do, and found out that being a university professor is perhaps the best job that exists, especially if you have tenure the best job, because you're doing what you love, okay? And you are paid decent, not huge, 
So it's even better to then inherit uh, some big, big fortune and being a nobody the rest of your life. But it's really certainly one of the, but I believe it's the best kind of job somebody could have. And he was the one, he didn't say it, but I kind of got it from him. He worked until his last day, you know. He kind of got the stroke in the office when he was doing research. So then he was still alive for two, three years, but that's that what happens sometimes at the end of your life. But he was my role model, everything concerned with study, with research, with the love of study, with the seriousness, with devoting all your time, nonstop, 7.24, wake up in the middle of the night, think about the problem. Hmm. Well, Zvi, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with me today. You're a true innovator. So until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thank you very much, Todd. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an educated guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley Education Services, please visit edservices.wiley.com.